Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, our good friend, Virginia Delegate Nick Freitas, we're going to talk about all of these politicians that promise that X, Y, and Z will make you safe. Don't believe it. They're going to make you less safe. Check it out. Nick Freitas, it's good to have you back. It's great to be back. Yeah, you you are a long-term fan of the show, even before this iteration of the show. And I thought we'd do all sorts of things tonight. But the first thing we have to do is perhaps celebrate. Yes. Because you just won re-election. And I want to get into that story. But if we're going to celebrate, I feel like uh, we need to drink some bourbon. That, that would be the appropriate approach. And, you know, this this is a cast-strength bourbon, bourbon, Booker's. Ooh. Um this bad boy is 62.9%, so if you're not man enough, put a cube in it. <laughs> and, Destroy good bourbon with and we And we ice. won't judge. <laughs> well, we will judge. Yeah, but, as you should. Yeah. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us what on earth happened. I, I read headlines that, that you had a write-in campaign mm-hmm. and is one of the biggest write-in campaigns in Virginia history. How on earth did you end up in that situation? <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't by choice. Um, we had there was paperwork issues where there was two pieces of paperwork that uh, they needed from me as the candidate. There was one piece of paperwork they needed from the party, and at first they claimed they didn't have any of it. Then it turned out that well, okay, no, they didn't need one of them, and they already had that information, but they didn't get the paperwork from the party. So it's it's going back and forth. And uh, we said, well, okay, look, you you grant everyone extensions when this sort of thing happens, as long as you're a qualified candidate. Here's all the paperwork you're saying you're missing. All right, let's let's move on. And uh, and that's what they did for every other candidate <laughs> that had paperwork issues. Um, but in my case, they decided that uh, I needed to not be on the ballot. I, I even offered to step down. Uh, I said, look, I'll step down, but you know, allow a Republican to be on the ballot. If it can't be me, fine, it can't be me, but allow a Republican to be on the ballot. And they, uh, not only did they not allow that, they wouldn't even debate it. So the the one Republican, it's one Republican and two Democrats in the State Board of Elections. The one Republican said, all right, I, I have a motion to consider Delegate Freitas being on the ballot, died for a fail, you know, for, for a lack of a second. He goes, okay. I have a motion to allow any Republican to be on the ballot, provided they get the paperwork. And again, fail to to even have a second. So at this point, they didn't even want to have a discussion about it. Uh, So we said, all right, look, we think you're doing the wrong thing at this point. uh, So we're going to have to do a write-in. And um, we had a lot of people tell us there was was no way we could pull this off. It was the, uh, I mean, as far as we can see, it was the largest write-in in in Virginia history. And... uh, not only did we win, we won by 15 points. So in the most elaborate spelling bee in recent Virginia history. Yeah, even I can't spell Freitas. I mean, no, no, I have trouble with it. You <laughs> probably should have changed your name for political purposes. But anyway, cheers to that. Cheers. Um, so I just got back from Louisville, Kentucky. And I, I have a new discovered, uh, I'd had Booker's before, but I'm, I'm sort of into it. I find that, that moderation and taste is not one of my traits. <laughs> and that's true with my philosophy, and it's certainly true with my bourbon. So I like this guy because he's, he's a monster. Well, you know what they say, moderation and everything to include moderation. Yes. <laughs> that um, is good. 
so that it there, there's probably some sort of uh, playbook that you guys should should write and and I should point out that your um, this is your this will be your third term coming up. Uh, yeah, third term mm-hmm. in the the state house of delegates in Virginia. Uh, former Green Beret, um, general constitutional lunatic. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that is that on your resume? I, just, I love. I actually have it right on my business card. Yeah. You know, like constitutional lunatic. Huge fan of individual liberty. Leave me alone. It's, yeah. It's all right there. Yeah. And uh, you you have uh, you have been representing Young Americans for Liberty. We had Cliff Maloney on the show a yeah. couple of months ago, and you you took a leave of absence. Um, to run for re-election because, yeah. uh, as I understand it, Yall was knocking on lots of doors during that, that write-in campaign. Oh, well, Yall's whole win-at-the-door campaign has really been incredible. I mean, the reason why I put so much time into that particular organization is because of all the things that they've, they've put together. Um, it's not just about—it's not one component, right? It's not just the win-at-the-door. It's not just the education. It's not just the campus— it's bringing all of those things together where I, I feel like we have a liberty-based organization where they're not only educating the youth, but they're actually helping candidates. And then once candidates get in, they're holding them accountable and they're, they're providing them with resources that, excuse me, providing them with resources that a lot of liberty-minded legislators wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the entire history of, of liberty candidates. And I, I won't, exclude either libertarians or republicans or even sure. even democrats i'm i'm less interested in party these days mm-hmm. but but liberty candidates have always been really smart at book stuff mm-hmm. like they could quote mises yeah. and they could explain the non-aggression <laughs> principle but in terms of the actual mechanics it would it take to win for public office so i, I think i think y'all bringing that to the table is is super potent and you're one of the examples of, of how that works. I, I don't think, I mean, we had a lot of great volunteers. Our, our local committees did an excellent job. Uh, all the people that worked at the polls. But I can honestly say I don't, I don't think I'm sitting here ready to go into my third term in the General Assembly if Yal had not come in and did what they did. I mean, knocking 30,000 doors is a, is a huge deal in a district of 80,000 people. So let's take a step back because uh, you, you enlisted after... Nine eleven. How old oh, were you? I enlisted before. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so tell us, tell us why you enlisted and when you enlisted. You were just a pup. Yeah, yeah. So I actually enlisted when I was uh, seventeen years old. Uh, wow. I was still uh, still in high school, so I enlisted in the National Guard first, and uh, then went on the delayed entry program because I knew I wanted to go active duty. I knew I wanted to be an infantryman. And, and that's kind of funny, by the way, when you walk into a recruiter's office and you tell them, like, "Look, I'm going to give, I'm going to lay down the law here," right? I'm going to graduate. I've never been in trouble with the law, but if you can't give me the infantry, I'm not signing any papers. Right? The recruiter's looking at me like, oh, wow, the infantry. Well, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> um, but that's what I want to do. I figure if I'm going yeah. to be in the military, I want to be that, that guy on the ground uh, doing, the, doing the job in the mud. Uh, so, yeah, enlisted, went active duty. Like two weeks out of high school, I was down at uh, beautiful Fort Benning, Georgia, <laughs> for infantry basic training. Yeah, And two terms of duty later? Yeah, so I start off with the 82nd Airborne Division, 25th Infantry over in Hawaii. That was pretty good duty. Yeah. Uh, but then 9-11 took place when I was over in Hawaii, and uh, my wife, Tina, and I talked about it, and I pretty much let her know. At the same time, I'm, I'm watching Army Special Forces over in Afghanistan on horseback, uh, leading armies and, and doing phenomenal things. And I said, well, I want to do that. I want to I be one of those guys. And... Um, 
the thing that really impressed me about it was not just that they were out there getting to do really cool things, but their whole approach uh, to combat was creating host nation capacity. It was the idea that we're going to come alongside the local population and we're going to fight with them. And so I, I actually thought it was a, a an approach to combat, an approach to foreign policy that was far more in keeping with some of my political philosophy as well. That if if we're going to fight, then let's let's not try to take over the war and tell everyone how to you know what to do and how to do it. Let's come alongside people within that country that. Uh, have shared interests and cooperate with one another in order to achieve a sustainable solution. Now, obviously, you know, things haven't really worked out that great. And and I think in part that's because we do rely a little bit too much on, um, you know, not overwhelming force, but U.S. domination of, of a war effort that really should have belonged uh, in, in large part to the people over there that were fighting it because yeah. they're the ones that are going to have to rebuild after we're gone. Yeah, like one of the um, we always quote Hayek on this show. I can't help myself, and <laughs> and uh, there is in fact a drinking game that goes along with watching this show. That every time I quote Hayek, uh, oh, someone wow. has to drink. But there there does seem to be that sort of uh, Hayekian um, what what Hayek criticized is is the the arrogance of of thinking that you were smart enough to redesign mm-hmm. a complex society from the top down yeah. and. And nation building seems like the ultimate Hayekian <laughs> fatal conceit. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I can't imagine, because you, you were embedded and you, you were actually mm-hmm. trying to, to listen and learn as much as mm-hmm. as dictate how things would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what our foreign policy does. We, we, have, no. we have very strong opinions and we don't really give a damn what the facts of the case are. Well, I, I got in, <laughs> so I got in trouble once because... Uh, we're about to come back from, I, I, I think I've told you this story before. We were, we were coming back from Iraq on my second tour. Last week, we had packed the bags. We were literally, all we were doing was waiting around for the next ODA to come in. And uh, my detachment commander comes over and goes, you know, Nick, you need to put more into the uh, sit rep on the intel portion. I'm like, we literally have not done anything. I mean, I'm reading some reports. It's going to be fluff. He goes, I don't care. Put it in there. So my my commander and I had this little game we played. Um, I played it. Sometimes he participated where I would put something in the sit rep because he's supposed to read them before they go up. I'd put something in there as kind of a joke and then he'd take it out. Ha ha. That's really funny, Nick. And then send it up. Well, this time he, he forgot to. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I I had wrote into our official team sit rep for special operations task force North. I said, Hey, I've, I've got a question for everyone up there. That's smarter than me. Why are we the only military from a constitutional republic with a free market economy that goes overseas, overthrows violent dictatorships, and then implements centrally planned economies with parliamentarian democracies? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thankfully, my battalion commander was a very understanding what? guy. <laughs> so that wasn't the last day of your military career? No, no. I, I, managed, to, I managed to survive a little bit past that. But, um, but no, it, it, was, it was fascinating. There, one other story, if I could, on this one, because it was interesting. Um, I... Because I spent so much time working with the indigenous population, the uh, Iraqi military, there was one time where I, w- I was sitting there in every village we went to. The, the question was the same. We need more power. We need power. We don't have generators. So I'm sitting there with this Iraqi colonel, and I said, you know, Sadie, I, ha- I have a question. Um, everywhere we go, you know, they ask for power. How come some enterprising young Iraqi entrepreneur isn't going around selling generators or providing power. And he goes, well, you know, Nick, you don't understand. In Iraq, we have certain regulations on the size of the generators we can bring in. I said, oh, okay, government regulation. That, that makes sense that that would 
stunt growth. But um, okay, so don't, why don't you buy smaller generators? He goes, oh, well, Nick, you don't understand. You know, we're, we're very family oriented and very, you know, we have our various tribes. And if my cousin can't pay his power bill, then I'm not going to I'm not going to shut off his power. I said, OK, well, then why don't you sell power to someone that's not in your tribe? And finally, he's 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 being very polite, but he's a little bit exacerbating. He goes, why would we do it when you give it to us for free? Yeah. And I said, ah, <laughs> yes, that is, is that is the answer. We are over here creating perpetual dependency so sounds sounds like our entire experiment with uh, the war on poverty yeah <laughs> yeah we've created a lot of poverty in the war on poverty i don't yeah. think that was the intention but we've we've certainly yeah, yeah. Un- those unintended consequences are yeah. killer but we have a huge industry around alleviating yeah. poverty that is certainly well funded so. yeah so speaking of unintended consequences i i didn't intend for that segue but it's beautiful for where <laughs> i want to go and i want to establish the fact that that you have spent the um, your adult life defending this country mm-hmm. and 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 presumably in your mind you're doing it to make America a safer place to live mm-hmm. to, to protect our citizens um, but I have this theory that I want to put in front of you that every time a politician says I have policy X mm-hmm. and it's to make you safe <laughs> You should run for the hills yeah. because it's going to do the opposite. It, it's probably a good idea. I um, I was in a debate recently with uh, my previous opponent, and uh, I said, you know, I, I hear people on the left, and I and I take them at their word, and really politicians in general. It's not on just on the left, but politicians in general talk about I care, I care, I care, I care, and I believe them. Um, but more and more, when I look at their policies, what I actually see is. I want to control, I want to control, I want to control, I want to control. Yeah. And there's a uh, there's a certain element of that where it's just, it's overbearing and quite frankly obnoxious. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted, the country I believe I'm fighting for was a free one where people get to make their own decisions. Um, but no, another perfect example, and again, I'm, I'm, unfortunately we're going to have to segue back to Iraq here for a second. When we first went over to Iraq, we were actually disarming the population. Four years later, we were arming them. <laughs> Because guess what? We couldn't be in every village. We couldn't protect every area. And it's the same concept. Over here in the United States, every time a politician says, we need a new regulation or we need this new tax because it's going to fund this program that's going to take care of you or it's going to protect you. And you see the same thing with uh, gun control policy is, is trust us with a little bit more. We just need a little bit more of your freedom, a little bit more of your money, and we'll protect you. Don't worry. And I, I'm sorry, but I don't see that playing out in society very well. As I look across space and time, as I look across history, I see more and more when, when populations, when free people give up more of their power to be able to live their own lives, to include to be able to defend themselves under the hope or promise or guise that the government's going to do it for them. I don't see them being safer. I don't see them being more prosperous. I see them becoming more dependent and later on down the road really regretting it. Yeah. Well, let's dig into gun control because I think this this is a difficult one for those of us that believe in the Second Amendment mm-hmm. because we always run headlong into arguments about safety. Yeah. And they tend to be emotional arguments. And, mm-hmm. and every time there's, there's a horrific shooting, um, you know, particularly at schools and, yeah. and people have this emotional response, we have to stop this. And the only way I can think to stop it is to ban this gun or impose more restrictions on the ability of people to acquire guns legally. And and logically and empirically, mm-hmm. these solutions don't make any sense yeah. at all. But And yet, emotionally, apparently they're quite compelling. 
Well, and I think you, you hit it. So one of the things um, I used to teach economics and government to students, and one of the things I used to emphasize to them is emotion is not a bad thing. Uh, when you have a visceral emotional response to something, whether it be good or bad, um, that's an invitation to thought. So the moment you allow the emotion to direct your action, that's where you start to get into problems. And, and that's the part where I start to question, is your true intention to understand this problem and to come up with a solution that will actually work? Or is your true intention to make yourself feel better about whatever the problem is and your response to it. And, and you see this all the time with kind of the virtue signaling and whatnot, like, oh, I need to be the first one on Twitter to respond to this. Yep. I don't need to see any other facts. I don't need to see other evidence. In fact, evidence and facts at this point, like how can you be talking about you know cold hard facts when we demand action? Like, well, wait a second, I want to fix the problem. I'm assuming you also want to fix the problem based off of the emotional reaction you've had to it. But what that requires is that now that we have to we have to actually do the hard work of understanding the nature of the problem, the circumstances surrounding it, how to best address it. And if it's just, you know, this will make me feel better. Well, then I'm going to start to assume that you're not a compassionate person. You're lazy. Yeah. And you just want to do what makes you feel better instead of what actually makes people safer. Or or sort of outsourcing that responsibility, because the yes. other the other dynamic in play there is there are plenty of politicians that, that, let's be honest, aren't trying to solve the problem, but, but if they could sort of accumulate political power oh, yeah. and maybe power over our lives in the process. And, and you know, we, we, we bang our heads against the wall and we point out the fact that um, there's a reason why protesters in Hong Kong are exposed right now. Yeah. And yeah, some yeah. young kid got shot in the abdomen a couple days ago. And, you know, there's a history of this, of this uh authoritarian Chinese government mm -hmm. slaughtering people. They did it in Tiananmen Square, mm -hmm. certainly um, before that in Mao's China. Gun control was a, was a, was a thing, and it wasn't mm -hmm. sold as a way to strip people of their ability to defend themselves. Yeah. It was sold as, we'll make you safer. Yeah. yeah. Same thing, uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro in yeah. Venezuela. Venezuela. He, he, was, he was worried about the violence, much of which he was orchestrating <laughs> yeah. um, through the, uh, I think they're called captivos, my, I might be butchering that, but you know, there's these these gangs that that Maduro was using to mm -hmm. to sort of impose discipline on on protesters in Venezuela, and so they they gathered up all the guns, and it was a name in pro of protecting people. Uh, those arguments aren't that quite that persuasive, but uh, I do feel like there's two groups. There's there's the demagogues that want <clears throat> to manipulate you into doing something that you really don't intend, mm -hmm. versus people that have an emotional reaction and 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 they do want to solve the problem. We mm. we just gotta we gotta figure out some sort of way to connect with people who have that that visceral idea that uh, we should just take the guns. No, I, I agree. I think um, one of the things I try to focus on whenever we talk about gun control is is again keeping focused on what the problem is, because most people can agree on a problem and they can agree on a potential end state. They just debate on how we get from problem to end state. And if you can keep the discussion there, you can usually make some progress, even if you don't. You know, it's not, everyone's not singing kumbaya at the end. You at least can have a respectful conversation. One of the things I always like to bring up with people is, do you realize that conservative estimates suggest that 500,000 times a year in this country, that's conservative estimates, you know, the more liberal ones, um, 2.1 million per year. Somebody uses a firearm, a law-abiding citizen uses a firearm in order to defend themselves. 
So when you say we're going to make it harder for someone to have a firearm, you look at the 33,000 gun deaths every year in the United States, uh, two thirds of which are by suicide. And you say, I'm, we're going to prevent some of this. I see 500,000 new victims that never had to be a victim, except that their government made them more vulnerable to their attacker. Yeah. Um, so if, if you can appreciate that we both care about innocent people getting harmed and we both want to prevent that, we simply have different approaches to it, well, then we can have a respectful discussion about that. But I'm not about to tell a battered wife that she's not allowed to get a firearm in order to defend herself because it would make you kind of feel safer if she didn't have it. I'm not about to tell the shop owner that has been robbed several times and has been beaten um, or as my uh, story, my father once relayed me an LAPD of a of a um, older gentleman who every every month during payday, the gang members came over, beat him up and took his paycheck. I'm, I'm not about to tell that person that, hey, you don't get to defend yourself because it might make someone over here feel safer. Uh, I'm not interested as, as much in what makes you feel safe. I'm actually interested in what makes you actually safe. Yeah. Yeah. And so. It's difficult, but you're right. We, we can't just rely on, this isn't just a statistics game. This really is about protecting flesh and blood people and, and figuring out the best way to do that. And I don't see how disarming law-abiding citizens is the way to do it. And, and I just want to bring up one other point, because you're right when we say that, well, the Second Amendment is not just about individual defense from a criminal or a gang member. Or it's about defense from an oppressive government. And you say that in Today in the United States, and people kind of roll their eyes like, oh, right. you, you really think the 82nd yeah, Airborne Division is happened. coming? And I like to remind them that, okay, well, two generations ago, um, if you were a black family in the Jim Crow South and you called the cops because the Klan was threatening you, you didn't know if the cops were going to ignore you or if the cops were going to show up and help the Klan. Yeah. The thing that actually protected you and your family against the government was the fact that you had the ability to own a firearm and protect yourself and that you could pool with other people and protect yourselves and protect your, each other's families. So that wasn't 200 years ago, 50, this isn't redcoats, right? Right. This is you know, agents of the government in the Jim Crow South a couple generations ago. So this idea that, well, we've moved past all of this, I, I'm sorry. Human behavior can definitely change and societal norms can change. And I think it's great that I, th I think we have made a lot of progress on civil rights and civil liberties. But don't ever doubt that there is an element of human nature that is always there waiting beneath the surface when it's not held in check. And to say that I'm not going to I'm not going to permit you as the government to be able to defend yourself because I think we're past all of that. That's that's unjust. Yeah. As my buddy Maj Ture, the, I don't know if you've met oh, Maj. Yeah. I haven't but, met uh, him, but know of him. He's the yeah. uh, founder of Black Guns Matter. Yeah. And as he points out, all gun control is racist. And certainly the, the ugly history of gun control laws in this country mm -hmm. have everything to do with the story you just told. And yeah. It was a way of, of disarming black people from defending themselves mm -hmm. against um, not just the Klan, but, but corrupt cops as well. Yeah. And uh, that... It's so it to me it's a it's a it is a civil rights issue, mm -hmm. um, but it's also a practical issue. Like uh, Terry and I, we live in the District of Columbia. There's plenty of crime here, and and we went for the longest time without owning a firearm in our home. Yeah. And it and of course the district makes it very difficult for oh, yeah. for citizens to um, acquire self defense. But uh, there's been Supreme Court cases that made it easier for us, so we finally did it. But it wasn't. 
about um, it wasn't about crime. We weren't worried about crime in the city, even though we have plenty of it here. Um, what what triggered me was um, the terrorist attack in Paris, mm-hmm. where where these these terrorists took over a concert theater mm-hmm. in, in the Bataclan and and gunned everybody down. Mm-hmm. And and reading the interview with uh, the lead singer from uh, the Eagles of Death Metal who were playing that night, he happens to be a Second Amendment guy. Yeah, and and he. He will never get over the fact that people didn't know the first basics about how to defend themselves. Yeah. And there was no way to like call in the cops. There was no yeah. way to call in the military. Uh, it was happening at that moment at that time. So we decided that in a, in a, in a decentralized world where, where there might be a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. certainly in this city, yeah. um, we need to take a little bit of responsibility. Like mm-hmm. I, th- I think owning a gun is a responsibility mm-hmm. and, and taking a little bit of responsibility to not just defend your home, but your neighborhood and your community. Um, that's, that's sort of the American system and that's why yeah. we don't have as many problems as we have. Oh no, I, as I ha- could have. No, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, whether it's a foreign threat or a domestic threat or whatever it is, it's, if, if you believe in individual liberty, I mean, obviously, we, we live in a market economy, so we delegate you know, responsibilities and we have specialization and division of labor, and, and that's all fine. But ultimately, you are responsible for your own safety. I mean, that, that's not something, and, and it's been you know, legally demonstrated before that the law enforcement does not have an obligation to protect you. They have an obligation to enforce the law. Right. The military does not have an obligation to protect the citizens. We have an obligation to follow lawful orders, support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, because there's no way you can make a government agency legally responsible for protecting you. You can make it a part of their purpose. But if you make them legally responsible for protecting you, well, then what happens when you get hurt? Can, can you take them to court and sue them because they weren't there because the cop wasn't in your house when the burglar broke in? So I do think it comes back to you know, part of individual liberty is personal responsibility. And once you realize that you do bear some responsibility for your own safety, I don't think it's a constricting thing. I, I think it's a liberating thing. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I agree. You don't, you don't wait and, and you, and back to my theme, you don't have to depend on some politicians empty promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I really think like I was, I was cruising around before we, um, started talking about all the presidential candidates and I, I suspect it's every single one of them, Republican, Democrat, um, God knows who else that, that talk about, um, how they're going to protect you. Mm-hmm. And, and they use it just to shoehorn whatever it is issue yeah. they want to talk about. They want to talk about gun control. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about sexual violence. They want to talk about, about immigration on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a lie. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think governments can uh, keep us safe. I think I think that we keep ourselves safe. No, I, yeah, I think. Now, obviously, I I believe in a military. I believe in law enforcement and a court system. I think all of those things can contribute to a safe environment. They can also contribute to an oppressive environment. Yeah, um, it's a tool, and it's it's as good or as bad as the people that are occupying those positions. But I don't think individuals should ever surrender the right nor surrender the responsibility to recognize that they, they do have to defend themselves. Like I, I look at myself as, you know, for my wife, for my kids, um, I, I have a responsibility to protect them. And that means physical protection. That's not just financial or emotional protection. Yeah. Um, 
And, and more and more, that, that term, I'm going to protect you, has spilled over, not just into the physical protection, but it's the whole, we're going to protect you from every possible you know challenge or difficulty that you could face in your life. And it, it really does, that sort of proposition does inevitably lead to greater you know oppression. And I know that word, yeah. people think it's a little bit hyperbolic, but I'm sorry, how many lessons in history do we need to realize that once you have given the government this kind of authority, don't be surprised when they extend it way past beyond whatever you intended and certainly beyond whatever they promised. Well, think about, um, think about your service in Iraq. I'm, I'm going to make you safer. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to invade Iraq because of weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are we in our ninth year in Afghanistan, uh, 19th year yeah, in Afghanistan yeah. now, where people that weren't even born mm-hmm. at 9-11 are, are dying in Afghanistan, yeah. or at least yeah. putting their lives at risk. I'm gonna make you safer by grabbing assault weapons, even all of the millions of legally acquired mm-hmm. assault weapons. I'm gonna make you safer by, by hacking your privacy mm-hmm. and, and monitoring all your calls. I, like the list is almost infinite. I'm, I'm gonna make you safer by um, carpet bombing Syria. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, whatever it is, yeah, and it's it's always in the context of that, and so I, I feel like we should at least be skeptical and say, well, let's let's dig a little bit deeper and figure mm-hmm. out how that works. But it's not just that the, the, the Democrats and guns are hardly the only perpetrators here. Of, oh, sure. of this demagoguery, I feel like um, you know we call them neocons, but yeah, you know yeah. the the so-called conservatives that yeah. have never yeah. seen a Paul war Wolfowitz they didn't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was, what was the joke that, I think somebody said that Paul Wolfowitz goes home and plays Civilization Six and just nukes innocent countries all day. Um, yeah, well again, I always go back to, like on the, on the foreign policy side, I, I'm not a pacifist. I, I do think there's times when military force is, is appropriate and necessary. Um, but again, I think for too long in this country, we've just simply assumed that, well, when the executive branch decides it's time to go to war, I guess the patriotic thing to do is to go along with it. And um, I, I do believe in supporting our, our soldiers, but that that's not a blank check to the government to deploy them all over the world fighting wars without any real clear objective or real clear definition of what victory looks like. And, um, you know, again, a soldier swears an oath to support and defend the Constitution. I think it would be nice if the politicians that send them over there, you know, under the guise that you're supporting and defending the Constitution, would also support the defending Constitution by actually going through the constitutional process before you deploy men and women overseas to fight. And so, yeah, I think that aspect, it's gotten way out of hand uh, with how much power we do give the executive. I mean, yes, once we've declared war, the executive has constitutional authority to execute that war. Uh, but I think we should be a little bit more careful with what we're volunteering, uh, you know, our men and women to go over and fight. I remember there was this quote where George Bush, I think we were on year f- you know, three or four uh, in Iraq, where George Bush said, well, where's the Iraqi Thomas Jefferson? You know, my response to that was, you know, the French knew the answer to that question before they got involved in our revolution. Um, So I I think it's fair to say that, look, we need to, you know, not only clearly determine that U.S. interest, valid U.S. interest and security is at risk if we don't get involved, but then we need to actually define uh, what victory looks like so that we have a a clear objective and so that our, our servicemen and women have a clear objective. And if they're not willing to follow the constitutional process to do that, if that if that's just way too cumbersome for them, then I'm sorry, it's not worth a single American life. Yeah, um, and I don't think that's too much to ask on our part. 
I've noticed, uh, and maybe you can corroborate this, but it seems like, um, you know, certainly starting with, with Ron Paul, with his skepticism of permanent war, mm-hmm. uh, he had a lot of support amongst, amongst veteran and active, active uh, uh, people in, in service. Uh, it seems like uh, Trump gets the same dynamic when it comes to um, getting out of Syria, getting mm-hmm. out of Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. Now, we, we haven't really executed those things yet, but yeah. he seems to get a lot of support um, for people in har- from people in harm's way because they, they know what's actually going on and, and what the limits are of, mm-hmm. of this kind of nation-building stuff that we're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's <clears throat> when you have to live at the business end of U.S. foreign policy, um, you want someone that, A, actually knows what they're doing and, and B, has your, your best interest in mind. And I, I think that uh, I think Trump's built a lot of goodwill within the military community, one, by being supportive of the military, uh, but by the same token, not spending their lives so cheaply as, as a lot of other presidents have done, as a lot of other executives has done. Um, I was actually really surprised by you know some of his restraint with you know episodes that were happening with Iran and and um, yeah. I mean he threw a general out of the I mean it's reported he threw a general out of the Oval Office when they were asking for thirty thousand more troops in Afghanistan. I, I think that he looks at this from a perspective of I don't see what the compelling U.S. interest is in some of these, and I'm not willing to expend uh, you know U.S. lives if you can't tell me what victory looks like. And so I think he has built a lot of goodwill, both on the, the support for the military on the one hand, but also the support from the end of, I, I'm not going to treat you like chess pieces. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you what, when Ron Paul, I remember when Ron Paul first started talking about foreign policy, man, I, I bristled. I didn't like it. I didn't like what he had to say about it. I thought he was way off base. And over time, I've become a lot more convinced, you know, experience is a hard teacher. Yeah. Uh, that a lot of what he was saying, and, and there's still areas where I would probably disagree with on, on finer points and whatnot, but on the larger point of, you know, look, this idea that you're going to show up with some tanks and everyone's going to be like, oh, thank God, American liberators, you know, gosh, how should we organize our country now? You know, that doesn't happen. And we, we've seen that now. Yeah. And it, it is arrogant. Um, well, you'll remember that, that our first president in his farewell address essentially said slow down there cowboy <laughs> yeah yeah maybe he didn't say it quite that way but he yeah. he he laid out some fairly reasonable questions that we should have yeah when it comes to entangling alliances mm-hmm. like you know can we afford to do this yeah um do we do we actually know that if we do this it, it, it we're going to get an outcome mm-hmm. that that's better than than the status quo and and somewhere i mean i, I feel like even up to ronald reagan the Republican Party was was a party of restraint on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reagan himself was was um, amazingly restrained when it came to, you know, the Berlin Wall fell not because we blew it up, but because yeah. we we practiced free enterprise. Yeah, yeah, uh, radical idea today. Because uh, you know, after nine eleven, the Republican Party went sort of bonkers and and decided that that we could sort of reorganize the world order mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on american ideals you know where well, is that where is that sort of thomas jefferson guy kind oh, of thing oh yeah well and, and you saw that first with woodrow wilson and you know we're going to go make the world safe for democracy and all we need is more international organizations to sit around and create policy and then i do think republicans and and i was guilty of that um, you know immediately following 911 where when you get hit you want to hit back 
And I do think some hitting back was absolutely necessary after 9-11, but I think it's also fair to go back and question, okay, the hitting that we did, you know, was it the the cost-benefit analysis? Does this actually add up? Was this better for U.S. foreign policy? Or again, back to the emotional argument, or does it just make you feel better that you hit back? Yeah. Um, and you hit back this hard, right? Where, where was, I'm not talking about don't hit hard, hit hard, but hit hard where it actually has the impact and achieves the objective that we're, we're looking for. And uh, I think a lot of things with politics now have just become overwhelmingly emotionally driven. And again, the, the bad thing is not the emotion, but I, I go back to that statement. Emotion is an invitation to thought. Because if you really care, you're gonna say, okay, I know how this makes me feel, and if I really care, I'm, I'm going to actually take the time to study and understand so that I can produce a good result, so that I can achieve the sort of a result that would be good and just and moral. Um, but un- unfortunately now, I think we're too often we want immediate gratification for whatever our action is. And, and we, we look at the action itself as, oh, well, at least we did something. Well, not if you screwed everything up or made yeah. it worse. I yeah. mean, that doesn't make you a good person. None of the... Uh none of the mass shooters in recent history in the United States were any in any way sort of flagged by our enhanced surveillance and the and the, <laughs> yeah. the, the sort of capturing all the data basically means that that we don't see clear patterns amongst yeah. bad actors so it actually has made us less safe while blowing the Fourth Amendment out of the water while blowing yeah. personal privacy out of the water and these are like core American values oh, yeah. that we're just throwing out the window because someone said we'd be safer. Well, and I think there's also an expectation that people have. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase Tom Sowell, who's one of my just I admire that guy so much. He, again, he's not allowed to die. That's my that's my thing with Thomas Sowell. But he once said that um, once the electorate expects politicians to do things which are just not possible, then the only politicians will suffice are liars. Because they're the only ones willing to promise you the world for nothing in exchange. Yeah. And um, everything is ultimately uh, on these policy decisions. It's not about solutions as much as it is about trade-offs. And for me, the freedom trade-off is I'm, I'm very, very skeptical of trading any of my freedom under the guise that some sort of new government agency or bureaucracy is going to make me safer or more prosperous or happier. Um, but unfortunately, I think we have just by the nature of the way we educate people or we talk about politics, both sides of the aisle is it's always this idea of, okay, Oh my gosh, here's a problem. What's government going to do about it? Well, you know, when my, when my car breaks down, I don't, I don't immediately think to myself, gosh, what's my dentist going to do about this? Because my dentist isn't trained to fix my car. My dentist isn't suited to fix my car. No matter how good intention my dentist may be, that's not my dentist's skill set. So if I take my broken car to the dentist and say, fix this for me, and he fails to do so, the logical response would not to be to be, well, gosh, my dentist doesn't care enough. I need to find someone who really... No, it, government is set up to solve certain problems. And when it stays within those narrow lanes of protecting individual liberty, protecting property rights, protecting from foreign invasion, and it otherwise allows free people to work in voluntary cooperation to solve problems, then I think it can be of use. But... We've created this atmosphere now to where if you're the politician that is willing to tell someone, well, that's not an appropriate role of government, well, then you don't care enough. Yeah. Or I care enough to tell you the truth. Yeah. So what would you rather have? 
it's a it's a it's a tough message to deliver, um, particularly when when emotions and and tribalism are are sort of defining everything we talk about. Yeah. Not not only is it hard to talk about the 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 reason and the proper role of limited government, mm-hmm. um, and there are very good reasons why the founders did it this way, mm-hmm. but it's frankly it's hard to talk about policy. Yeah. It's yeah. we don't we don't talk about policy anymore. We spend no. all of our time talking about how bad the other side is. Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever you think of me, just keep in mind, those guys are worse. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and that's the entire, and <laughs> both is. parties, I think, make this is their primary argument. Oh, about. yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, and it is unfortunate. I had a, uh, a group full of high school students ask me once, like, how do we get civility back in politics? Like, well, the first mistake is thinking it was ever there. But, <laughs> uh, but okay, how do we get to a more civil political discussion? Yeah. I said, well, first things first. Tone matters, right? There's there's a number of ways I can ask you a question or I can um, talk to you about something, and if I use the right tone, you'll you'll probably be willing to at least hear me out. So tone matters. Yeah. The second one is try not to assume people's intentions, unless they've really given you a good indita- indication that they have bad ones. Then don't assume they have bad ones. Assume they have good intentions, but maybe disagree with the policy. I said those two right off the bat can get you a lot farther than most people get in political discourse these days. I said, but here's the third issue, and this is the one where it does become more philosophical. If I have a nice tone and I don't assume you have negative content or, or intentions, but ultimately my goal is to force you to do something you don't want to do, you're still going to bristle at that. And that's the problem with trying to solve so many things through government. You're going to fight. Is that ultimately we're, I'm, not having a, I'm not having a nice discussion with you about what policy I prefer I'm having a nice discussion with you about what policy I'm about to impose on you against your will, and you don't get to do anything about it. I'm sorry. That's at some point, civility is going to break down. Now, if we were talking about feeding hungry people, and you had a particular way to do it, and I had a particular way to do it, and neither of them relied on coercive force, we could either, you know, I could say, you know what, your idea is better. Let's do that. Or we could say, you know what. I don't like your idea. You don't like mine. So we're going to go off and we're going to both try our respective ideas and we're going to see which one works best. You can coexist in both of those environments because neither of us are trying to force the other one to do something. But the moment you say, here's my idea and I think it's really great and I really think you should like it too. Oh, by the way, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to use the government to forcefully confiscate your wealth and redistribute it in accordance with the way I think it should be done. That doesn't sound very civil to me. No. So... That was the other component that I'm trying to get across to these kids is that, one, if you want genuine civility, stop trying to force people to do things that you want them to. And two, recognize that you have the power within yourself. You don't need to ask permission from the government or a politician to go feed a hungry person or help a homeless person or, or, or whatever it is. Um, you don't To solve a problem, you can start a business. You can come up with a charity. You can do all of these things that are, are there for you to go do it. No permission necessary. Um, so why don't we try that first? Can we, can we at least, here's an idea. What if we try the peaceful solutions first? And once we've exhausted those, then we can start to talk about your coercive and violent solutions to problems. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable you know, request, you know, if you really want civility in politics, but unfortunately. Well, yeah. I, I think you, I think you've pinpointed the, the solution and also the problem of getting at that solution. I mean, that I'll butcher another George Washington quote because he basically said that that um, 
government is not civil, it's violence. Mm-hmm. And he said something else, but yeah, it, it meant yeah. the same thing. And mm-hmm. and the only way to in, in, in to expand civility is to sh- shrink the power of government so yeah. that that guy that really wants to force you to live a certain way. Yeah. And and again, this is I, I, I really think both parties are guilty of this to a great extent today. I'm going to take charge of government so that I can force those other guys yeah. to get in line on this. Well, it's, you know, you bring up Young Americans for Liberty, and, and I love going to YALCONs. Because um, one of the great things about YALCON is, so I'm a devout, heterosexual Christian male, right? So fairly exotic. <laughs> fairly profile, exotic in yeah. the United States, right? But you go to YALCON and you'll see somebody that is maybe transgender or an atheist or whatever it is. And we all sit together and we have a beer and we talk about a, a variety of ideas and we're all friends. We, and we have drastically different worldviews on every on core fundamental issues. Yeah. I mean, when, we, when you're talking about an atheist and a, and, a, and a Christian, I mean, we disagree on the fundamentals of life. Yeah. And yet here we are getting along just fine talking to each other at Yalcon. Why? Because we know neither of us is going to try to use force against the other one. So we have the ability to engage in a free exchange of ideas. And where we agree, we work together. And when we don't agree, we try different things. And and the proof is in the results, um, not your ability to force someone to do what you want. And I, that's the beauty of it. I mean, if you really want coexistence, again, coexistence is resisting the urge to coerce people that you can't convince. And it's amazing that how much you know friendlier an environment we have when we're not all trying to find some politician to impose our will on our neighbor. I'm going to leave it right there. That was awesome. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.